High rates of cesarean sections have driven increased use of operative vaginal delivery, for example with forceps or vacuum. However, during the second stage of labor, engagement of the fetal head in the pelvis means that physicians have to carefully assess the benefits and risks of an operative vaginal delivery versus a cesarean section. Often a C-section is favored, but what we don't know is how operative vaginal delivery and C-sections compare in terms of severe morbidity and mortality for both baby and mother. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Julia Muraka, a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health and a Vanier Canada Graduate Scholar. In their research article, Ms. Muraka and her co-authors compared outcomes of use of forceps and or vacuum with a C-section delivery. Ms. Muraka is here today to explain the results of their research. I reached her in Vancouver. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kirsten. So you've studied a specific stage of labor under very specific circumstances. Tell us more about how you went about your study. Yes, our intent was to compare outcomes between women who were in the second stage of labor, as you mentioned. Now, the second stage of labor refers to the stage when a woman is fully dilated to 10 centimeters. And this is often called the pushing phase of labor because this is when most women start to feel the urge to bear down and acting, active pushing begins. Now, when there's an arrest in the descent of the fetal head in the maternal pelvis during this stage of labor, and the option for a spontaneous vaginal delivery is no longer available, there are only two options that remain. The first is to attempt an operative vaginal delivery, which you mentioned is an instrument-assisted delivery using forceps or vacuum, or both sequentially. And the second option is the surgical option, which is to extract the baby by cesarean. And the reason for our interest in the second stage was because the use of forceps or vacuum is only appropriate once labor reaches the second stage. It's contraindicated to apply an instrument vaginally unless the woman has reached full dilation. We were able to restrict our main analysis to women in the second stage, which ensured that we could make appropriate comparisons between operative vaginal delivery and cesarean delivery. So how do you assess that a woman's at... Um the second stage of labor? Is there really good record keeping? So our data source did not include information on stage of labor. And this has been a limitation that has plagued several previous studies trying to answer the same question. Because if you include cesarean deliveries that occurred prior to the second stage, you're no longer comparing apples and apples. And we know that there's greater morbidity once a woman reaches second stage in terms of cesarean compared to first stage. And so that would have biased our results in favor of cesarean delivery. So what we did to address this issue was we had a diagnosis code for prolonged second stage of labor. So that means that a physician would have had to make the notation in the, in the medical chart that the delivery was a, a prolonged second stage. And the physician would not have written that unless that would be the case. So the fact is that diagnosis has a very high um, specificity rate, meaning if they weren't in second stage, it would be very unusual for a physician to have noted that they are in a prolonged second stage. So we use that diagnosis to ensure that we included only cesarean deliveries in second stage. Why did you want to do this study particularly? Um, so it's known that we've known for 30 years that the rate of cesarean delivery is increasing and it's increased dramatically. And so in an effort to curb this rising trend in cesarean delivery, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, in collaboration with the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, 
recently advocated for increased use of operative adenal delivery as a strategy to reduce the cesarean delivery rate. Now, the evaluation of approaches to achieve this are already underway, and the current discourse surrounding operative vaginal delivery really centers on methods to promote these skills. But truthfully, we don't yet fully understand the balance of risks and benefits to mothers and their babies following operative vaginal delivery compared with cesarean delivery. And you can imagine that the preferred choice given these options relies heavily on how far the baby's head has descended in the birth canal. So if the baby's head has descended far enough that it's visible on the perineum, then the use of an instrument has clear advantage. But when the fetal head is engaged in the maternal pelvis but hasn't descended so far down the birth canal, the decision between these modes of delivery becomes less clear. These deliveries are called mid-pelvic deliveries, and it's an increase in these mid-pelvic deliveries that would have the most potential as a strategy to reduce the cesarean delivery rate. And as a result, it's these deliveries that we were interested in studying. Now, operative vaginal delivery in Canada is carried out in approximately 14% of all term births in Canada. And those that occur when the babies at mid-pelvic station account for just over 20% of all operative vaginal deliveries. So this translates to about 2 to 3% of all term singleton deliveries, or just over 8,000 deliveries per year overall in Canada. And the existing literature on mom and baby outcomes that contrast mid-pelvic operative vaginal delivery and cesarean delivery are based on studies undertaken 25 to 30 years ago that are clearly no longer reflective of our current obstetric practice. So this was the impetus for our study. We reasoned that before we decide to encourage increased operative vaginal delivery, we should first get a sense of the safety of such procedures compared to cesarean delivery as provided by contemporary maternity care providers. Your study population is quite large, but it's also specific. Who was included in your data analysis, and what was the reasoning behind choosing this population? We obtained data on all deliveries in Canada, excluding those in the province of Quebec between the years 2003 and 2013. And we wanted to ensure that we didn't include deliveries for which the choice of mode of delivery might have been motivated by a pre-existing complication or event. So for this reason, we only looked at term deliveries, those between 37 and 41 weeks gestation, of singletons, so no twins or higher order deliveries, and we restricted our study to deliveries by women without known medical complications such as hypertension and diabetes. We also excluded all deliveries to babies who were born with congenital, congenital anomalies for this very same reason. We further excluded deliveries that had no record of labor in order to ensure that there were no cesarean deliveries included in our analysis that were carried out before labor began. And then finally, we separated deliveries into two categories based on the indication or the reason for operative delivery. The first indication was dystocia, which in our study was defined as a diagnosis of difficult labor in the absence of fetal distress. And the second category was deliveries with an indication of fetal distress. And we did this because the circumstances and outcomes are very different depending on the presence of fetal distress. And this was highlighted in the differences that we observed uh, between these two groups with respect to our findings as well. In the end, this resulted in uh, over 180,000 deliveries included in our analysis, just over 76,700 with dissocia and just over 110,000 with fetal distress. So you then looked at um, two primary outcomes and tell us what those were. 
So we were interested in quantifying the rates of severe adverse outcomes for both moms and babies following all the possible modes of delivery. We're fortunate that most severe adverse outcomes are rare in our population. So in order to meaningfully compare the rates of outcomes, we combine them into what's termed a composite outcome. In this way, we could provide clinicians and their patients with estimates of likelihood of experiencing a severe adverse outcome. So we can say this is your risk of experiencing X severe complication or any severe complication. And often this is the information that women want to know. The tricky part when doing this is to ensure that all the individual components of your composite outcome are similar in their severity. So in our case, we combine death with severe complications that would have long-term consequences. So with respect to our, our primary perinatal outcome for the baby, we included the need for assisted ventilation by endotracheal tube, neonatal seizures, severe birth trauma, which were very bad traumas like severe brain bleeds or uh, injury to the major organ like um, injury to the liver or the spleen, as well as a stillbirth and a neonatal death. Our maternal composite outcome included severe complications such as severe postpartum hemorrhage, which was the occurrence of a postpartum hemorrhage that required a transfusion, shock, sepsis, acute renal failure, and cardiac complication like cardiac arrest or cardiac failure and maternal death as well. What were your main findings? And perhaps you can highlight for us the results that surprised you most. So our study revealed that when fetal distress is not present and the indication for operative delivery is dystocia, the rates of severe complications for the infant are more likely following mid-pelvic forceps and mid-pelvic vacuum compared with cesarean delivery by approximately 80%. However, when fetal distress is present, mid-pelvic vacuum delivery was associated with lower rates of severe maternal complications. We also found that mid-pelvic forceps was associated with significantly higher rates of postpartum hemorrhage and significantly lower rates of postpartum infection, regardless of indication. So as to what was surprising, although the comparative results of our study were significant and, and interesting, perhaps our most compelling findings were the simple crude rates of obstetric trauma that we found among women who had a mid-pelvic forceps or mid-pelvic vacuum delivery. The high rates of severe perineal tears following mid-pelvic operative vaginal delivery are, frankly, their cause for concern. We found rates as high as 20% following mid-pelvic forceps delivery. And women need to be informed about this substantially increased risk, um, along with the relevant long-term quality of life implications that are involved. In short, I think our results we can safely say they suggest that encouraging higher rates of operative vaginal delivery could result in increases in severe perinatal and maternal morbidity, especially birth trauma, severe postpartum hemorrhage, and obstetric trauma. So it seems that the consequences were more severe for mothers than for babies. I wouldn't say that they were um, more severe. I would say they were more frequent. Okay. So what do these results mean for women? And what do they mean for physicians who deliver babies and counsel women about uh, their mode of delivery? Should the pendulum swing back to encouraging more cesarean deliveries, for example? I get this one a lot. This is a million-dollar question. We, we aren't advocating for increased use of cesarean delivery, and we're certainly not suggesting that every woman who experiences arrest and labor be delivered by cesarean. These are decisions that need to be made on a case-by-case -case basis between practitioner and patient. 
Our study suggests that unless we can improve our ability to select candidates for mid-pelvic forceps and vacuum deliveries, or unless we improve training in such deliveries, that encouraging higher rates of forceps and vacuum as a strategy to reduce cesarean delivery could result in those increases that I mentioned in population rate increases of neonatal complications and in uh, postpartum hemorrhage and obstetric trauma. It's really important to note that our study focused only on mid-pelvic operative vaginal deliveries, those deliveries during which the baby's head has not descended beyond midway through the maternal pelvis. These estimates do not represent the outcomes following all forceps and vacuum deliveries, most of which occur when the head is descended further down the birth canal. In fact, two recent studies that looked at this question when the fetal head was lower in the birth canal found similar rates of outcomes among operative vaginal delivery and cesarean delivery. So we're certainly not advocating for the abandonment of forceps and vacuum. There are circumstances during labor for which the use of those instruments are safe and life-saving. For example, if there are signs of fetal distress, the prompt delivery of an infant using forceps can have a great advantage to cesarean delivery, which takes longer to prepare and execute. So the difference in time to, del to delivery in that situation could be the difference between a healthy baby and a baby with a major complication. What we are advocating for is that women should be informed of the risks of all modes of delivery so that they can choose whether they want their care provider to attempt a trial of operative vaginal delivery. I think the key is really to understand this. The assumption is that since deliveries by forceps and vacuum are carried out vaginally, that they qualify as more natural than cesarean deliveries. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand that similar to cesarean deliveries, forceps and vacuum delivery, certainly in at mid-pelvic station, are invasive procedures with their own risks, risks that we have now quantified and should be communicated to women who may encounter them, especially when the risk is as high as one in five. So women who consent to cesarean delivery are informed of the associated risks. Women who consent to mid-pelvic forceps or vacuum delivery should be afforded the same standard of informed consent. Sometimes there's not time for these discussions, especially in the setting of fetal distress, but this conversation should take place when there is an opportunity to discuss it, such as when fetal distress is a concern, or ideally prior to labor when women are considering their birth plans. That sounds sensible, and these findings will certainly um, inform those sorts of discussions going forward. Now, what are the next steps following this study in terms of research for you or for other researchers? Well, I think that next steps following the study would It'd be probably to investigate how to identify ideal candidates for operative vaginal delivery and for cesarean delivery. Ideally, we could better predict those deliveries that are at high risk for dystopia or a failure to progress and look at ideal timing. It's clear that some of the deliveries we studied that were vaginally extracted would have had better outcomes had they been delivered by cesarean earlier in the labor process. And the corollary is almost certainly true as well. There are likely women who were delivered by cesarean who may have had fewer complications had they labored longer and had an instrument-assisted delivery. So I think research focusing on selecting candidates and minimizing harm given difficulty in labor are the next steps to improve safety for women and their babies. And of course, I mean, personally, I would like to see more research into how women feel following a mid-pelvic operative vaginal delivery. When I try to start out the results of my doctoral work, all of which focuses on operative vaginal delivery, cesarean delivery, and pregnancy outcomes, I find I'm missing the women's voices and perspectives in my results. And I think qualitative work exploring women's experiences during and after the situation would be 
a very important extension of this research, really to help us understand how this knowledge can be used to improve maternity care overall. It brings me back to when I was a, a trainee and I worked in obstetrics for a while. And I worked in a rural hospital, so you had to kind of make that decision. Um, but interesting what you say about what women would choose, because also from the point of view of having had children. It's very interesting that you bring up your two points of view, one as physician, one as mom. I have that same I have that same issue, one as a mother and one as, as a researcher. And thinking about the choice and knowing what I know and um, how that has changed my vision. And I, I, I've really come to understand that this topic is polarizing. It's very divisive. There's so much emotion surrounding childbirth and the issues surrounding of such a trauma and choice in women's bodies. And what's been considered acceptable is, is a very political issue. And, you know, we were talking about further research. Also, you know, figuring out health service delivery research to see whether it's feasible to make physicians feel more comfortable using vacuum and forceps and, and a framework for increasing training to find an optimal solution. There's another huge area where research needs to be done. But really, I think at the end of the day, there's there's a philosophical divide about what constitutes successful delivery. Some women really want that vaginal delivery and their choice is that they will very, very happily accept a one in 5% risk of a severe perineal tear. Mm -hmm. um, and there are others that believe that achieving a birth, a successful birth is, doesn't matter what the mode of delivery is. So women's choice is, is just so integral in this matter. And I think that gone are the days where we can choose to share information about risk to women in the interest of not frightening them. Right. Um, and gone are the days that we can assume that severe obstetric trauma is a necessary side effect of achieving a vaginal birth. We really need to hear women's voices in this matter. Uh, I think this research really highlights that and the necessity to always interrogate the status quo. Well, good luck with completing your PhD and, um, and continuing with your research. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Christine. It's been fantastic talking to you as well. I've been speaking with Julia Muraka, a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health and a Vanier Canada graduate scholar. To read the research article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've been listening to our CMAJ podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels. Mm -hmm.